Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Isn't that right, Stefan? That is true, David. And we are out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, Ontario, and also on many very much appreciated radio syndicate partners, community radio stations around the country, and on podcast places, podcast websites, lists, platforms, even lists, lists, lists. And I'm David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. We're your Green Majority hosts. And I unfortunately don't think we're on any lists. We should get on a list of some sort. Top 10 fun podcasts to listen to. Yeah, someone make that list. (laughs) Make that list and add add us in. (laughs) You can do it, listeners. And then let us know that the list exists. Yeah, exactly. Then tweet us at the list. Or ideally have someone else stumble across the list and be like, oh my God, did you know you're on this? Mm. And then we'll go viral. It'll be great. And Stefan's going to interview friend of the show, energy expert, Matthew Klippenstein about... Uh, about a new uh, report about the future of energy. The that, future of energy. Well, it's about energy. It's an energy prediction model for 2050. My first question to, to Matt, Matthew is, who are these people? And... They sound very uh, reputable. Anyone talking about the future of energy must sounds like they have the, the very universe itself in their hands. Trying too hard, Stephen. They're <laughs> energy nerds. And we're going to do environmental climate news soon, but Stefan wanted first to make an uh, incendiary statement about Mark Jacquard. Energy nerd Mark Jacquard. <laughs> No, for those who are not deep into climate Twitter, which, you know, kudos to those of you who aren't, let's be real, you may have missed the fact that Mark Jacquard went mini rage viral, um, which is a term I just made up where everyone gets mad at you, so you go viral, when he released his assessment of how, quote unquote, serious the climate plans for each party were. And in it, he gives the liberals an eight out of 10, the Conservatives a five out of ten, the Greens I believe a three, and then the NDP a two. Yeah, and the I should note that uh, Lauren explained off uh, before the show that the way it was being counted was how likely they were to hit your tar- their own targets. So the Greens and NDP having more ambitious targets hurt their score, which then made it seem like, or it was definitely portrayed in larger media as if they were less serious about climate change, even though they just had harder targets to hit. But what I actually want to talk about is how over the past few weeks, I feel like I've, each one of these opening conversations have been basically me sort of slowly falling into a pit of despair about our, our current state. And this eight out of 10 for the liberal plan sort of, I think, sent me over the edge a little bit because if the liberal current plan is an eight out of 10, then maybe we need to, or we definitely need to increase the denominator to 20 because we are nowhere near hitting our Paris Agreement Accords or anything else. And so the idea that a plan is more quote-unquote serious because it can achieve its own targets with completely ignoring the societal requirements is a unhelpful, I'm just going to say, way to measure things. It's, you know, is it helpful to understand how robust the thinking within a platform is, maybe. 
Is it helpful for those of us who need drastic climate action? No. And so where I'm left with, what I'm, le what I'm left with is clearly the ideas that are being put forward by sort of the, 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 the economists or the more energy-focused folks in the world really sort of centers around a price on carbon and raised. And we were doing that. We've accepted that. Is presuming we don't get a, a, a you know a tool majority, we can presume that will continue and the price will increase. And so we've done the thing that climate co economists want us to do, and we're not getting to where we need to go. The IPCC report shows that. This interview with Matthew Klippenstein shows that. We're just not getting there. And so what we need is to throw the kitchen sink at it. We need so many new policy ideas that could be from anywhere and any idea. And so what I've decided to do, I've taken my sort of despair, and instead I'm now going to basically ask for in our in future interviews or if any listener has ideas for just new climate policies because clearly the those in power don't have any new ones because apparently we're about as best as we can get we've got an a liberals get an a at eight out of ten and yet have you know very little show for it beyond uh, beyond a price on carbon and so we are so desperate for new ideas and that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go look out for new ideas. So if you have any new ideas uh, for policy positions that any government that comes in power could take, send them our way, and I'm going to try to start collecting them because it's very clear to me that we need some. That's that's a great sort of prerogative to carry forward, and I love that. I'm not going to touch on that right now, though. Um, I did just, yeah, sort of want to, want to highlight that this piece by Mark Jacquard did really, like you said, was incendiary um, from the outset and got a whole lot of people within climate Twitter and within the climate community at large pretty riled up because um, obviously it's an analysis of, of party platforms ahead of the election. So, it, and he's he's a notable person within the climate world, um, because of his sort of like well-respected standing as an economist and somebody who takes climate seriously at a time when the world of economics, like didn't always take climate seriously. Like Mark Descartes has been working on this issue for a really long time. So when he says something, when he makes a statement, people tend to listen and people tend to care. Um, and the fact that, that this was the message he chose to put out into the world is, an unhelpful one from a movement standpoint. And I understand that he probably doesn't necessarily consider himself part of the movement. He's an academic. He's just like looking at the numbers and measuring them. But, but in, in, in 2021, every message you put out there about climate really does count, especially in a year when people are making really, really hard decisions when they go to the polls, not people don't necessarily know who to vote for because people are feeling very betrayed by parties. They maybe didn't necessarily feel betrayed by, and people are, people are really unclear. So when you're telling people that the NDP have a two out of 10 and the liberals have an eight out of 10 and Hey, even the conservatives have a five out of 10. And it's in a year when, yeah, O'Toole doesn't feel that threatening to people. And like, yeah, the conservatives are finally saying we have a climate plan. That's going to confuse a whole lot of voters. If that's like the CBC headline, they read is that conservatives score higher than 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 the NDP on this one metric that this one person has put out. Um, so yeah, I don't have any like big enlightening statements to make, but just sort of highlighting that like this this was really problematic, and I I question I question the validity of putting it out right now at all. You make a very good point in terms of the fact that you know here's a respected voice who could have explained and actually made the steps towards okay what are all of these policies compared to our actual target 
that would be such a more interesting plan, right? Or conversation. It's probably the same amount of work, but at least would then let us all examine like, okay, well, this is how much they plan on spending. Here are their plans. And it will get us to two thirds of our actual, you know, fair agreement or less, et cetera. And yet, you know, the, the, the phrasing of like how serious are their plans and seriousness, I'm putting them in quotes. You can't see this because it's the radio, but to mark seriousness as how likely they can meet their own targets, just, you know, like does the, do the, do the, the PPC get a hundred percent serious because they plan to do nothing. And so they can hit it. Like, where does it stop? Yeah. Especially when, uh, and you know what, I, I should probably stop speaking soon because for what it's worth, I haven't actually read the material he's put out. I've just been sort of seeing all this discourse play out, but, but maybe that's the point because this is the message that's getting out into the sort of general public. But it's like, when you take a party, like and this isn't me saying everybody needs to vote NDP. I'm not an NDP shill, I promise. I'm just saying, but like when you when you take a party that's taking an approach to climate, like the NDP is, for instance, that's a little bit more holistic, that's looking at things not just from a strict carbon accounting standpoint, but from a more um, justice-based, just transition standpoint, where it's making sure that even if we do get to 1.5, let's make sure everybody else is better off when we get there and we're not just like leaving people by the wayside. It, those... those um, policies become harder to work into a model, for example. So, so you can't, so it's, it's hard for me to believe that even when we're looking at the NDP's more ambitious climate target, that they don't have the plans to get us there. Um, when a lot of the plans that they're interested in putting in place aren't necessarily going to be measured within this specific model that Mark Jacquard was was using to, to base his analysis on. Um, but yeah, again, I, I, I should probably stop speaking because I like I said, I haven't actually read the material that he's put out. I've just been hearing all the all the chatter around it. Well, but yeah, but I think you're right. Like the chatter is what people hear. There is a level of which that's it, you know, like I'm sure if you sat Mark Chard down and, and had a conversation with him, he would be very happy to explain that, yes, he had a very small scope and he was really talking about this particular three things and this is why this matters and why it's important. And yet, you know, you are out there justifying a you know, some climate plans that are woefully inadequate. Exactly. Well, it's like media relations 101, right? You have to pick your top line messaging and stick to it no matter what, because other otherwise people are going to take your words and take your concepts and put your phrases and twist them and misunderstand you and take things out of context. So maybe maybe that's what this ultimately means is just that Mark Jacquard needs, needs, needs a media 101 briefing. I'm sure somebody <laughs> out there can give that to him. Yeah, just in terms of media messaging, it sounds like the problem is the numerical value. The relate the rating it out of ten because if you just write an article saying the liberals are the most likely to meet their own targets, then everyone knows what you're talking about. But when you come out with the numbers, it sounds like a definitive statement on their whole climate plan. It 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 becomes a percentage. It becomes like the liberals are like eighty percent good at climate, and the NDP are are twenty percent good at climate, and the conservatives are fifty percent good at climate. That's terrible English, but, but yes, no, you, the, to the point you made, David, that's exactly right. It's when you, when you start to quantify things numerically and then those, then those numbers and that data gets taken out of context. And it's so wild too. Like it's, uh, these ratings things out of 10 hold some sort of cultural cachet and they mean literally nothing. It's amazing oh, how yeah. much they get used like this. Oh no. Well, everyone loves a good five-star rating. Oh yeah. yeah. Now let's dive into the news. All right. We'll do news. Yeah. 
All right, so now we're going to do some climate news headlines. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What a mortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. A new study published in the journal Nature has found that in order to give ourselves even a 50-50 chance of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, human civilization will have to choose not to use almost 60% of the world's oil and methane gas deposits and 90% of all available coal. Additionally, oil and gas production must drop by 3% every year until 2050, which means that a great many existing and planned fossil fuel infrastructure projects cannot be used. The authors note that even this is probably an underestimate, since it would, after all, only give us a 50% chance of keeping global warming to a relatively safe level. And we have no idea if we will be able to suck greenhouse gases out of the air at a high rate. One of the study's authors, Steve Pye, said that there is increasing recognition that we are going to need widespread government policies specifically designed to wind down fossil fuel production. More than 230 leading medical journals have come together to publish a joint statement concluding, quote, the greatest threat to global public health is the continued failure of world leaders to keep the global temperature rise below 1.5 degrees Celsius and to restore nature. Urgent society-wide changes must be made and will lead to a fairer and healthier world. We, as editors of health journals, call for governments and other leaders to act, marking 2021 as the year that the world finally changes course. In order for that to happen, it's probable that this year's COP26 in Scotland will have to be successful, but a huge group of over 1,500 environment and human rights groups are asking the UN to postpone COP26 again because the countries most affected by the climate crisis may not be able to attend the talks because they do not have access to vaccines. Mohamed Adao, director of PowerShift Africa, said, quote, the UK has been too slow in delivering its vaccine support to delegates in vulnerable countries, and their quarantine requirements come with some eye-watering hotel costs. Some delegates are finding they cannot transit because some of the major travel hubs are closed, and the alternative travel costs are beyond the reach of poorer governments and smaller civil society organizations. If COP26 goes ahead as currently planned, I fear that it is only the rich countries and NGOs from those countries that would be able to attend, and a climate summit without the voices of those most affected by climate change is not fit for purpose. Hurricane Ida left death and damage in its wake all along the eastern coast of the United States after hitting Louisiana and Mississippi. As the storm slowly disintegrated, it broke into small tornadoes and heavy rain, killing over 50 people across several states. The first flash flood emergency warning ever issued in New York City was issued last week, where a bus driver was praised for braving the floods to save people with her inundated bus. While 25 people were killed in the floods in New Jersey alone, a study came out showing that well-off white people are more protected from climate change than anybody else. 
The storm has also caused at least 350 oil and chemical spills in Louisiana from busted oil wells, old abandoned pipelines, and flooded refineries. An 11-mile-long oil slick in the Gulf of Mexico is thought to have been caused by a pipeline that hasn't been used for years. Companies are officially supposed to clean everything up when they finish their business, but they have for decades been allowed to just leave everything as it is, even if there's still oil in the pipeline they're abandoning. There is therefore a lot of this kind of dangerous industrial trash in the Gulf. Antonia Jahaz told Democracy Now! this week, quote, Some of the refineries and petrochemical facilities have power, but, sort of shockingly, a lot of them don't. And because they don't, they're releasing horrible flares, black, dirty flares. They've been flooded, they're releasing chemicals, they're spilling, and they're not expected to have power for another two weeks. Offshore, there's a whole host of drill ships, platforms, infrastructure that we know that's been damaged, but they can't get out there. So the Coast Guard has done flyovers, but the, company, the companies haven't gone out there, so we still don't know the extent of the damage offshore. The Dixie Fire in California is still burning and could end up becoming the largest wildfire in the state's history. Some of California's carbon offset projects are falling victim to the fire as well, or the fire season in general. Uh, companies like Microsoft have bought and protected hundreds of thousands of acres of forest in California because it means that they're polluting less in the eyes of the government, but they have not been able to protect their offset forests from the wildfires. BP also lost 50,000 acres of its carbon offset forest in Washington state this summer. Over in British Columbia, the ongoing occupations of logging roads to prevent the cutting of ancient forests is becoming uh, the largest civil disobedience in Canada's history, with close to 900 people arrested since April. Protesters have attached their bodies in all kinds of ways to trees, makeshift structures, and the ground to stop loggers from getting into the forests. Police have ripped off protesters' masks to pepper spray them and dragged them by their hair to enforce a court injunction in favor of the logging companies. There have been accusations of police treating black and indigenous protesters more violently than others. Pachidat elder Bill Jones said, quote, We're surprised at the RCMP's determination to crush us. We all come to the conclusion that it's not just us they're wanting to crush, they want to protect the economic and regulatory process that the Canadian government uses to get what they want off the land under the directions of the large corporations. Yeah, so jumping in here and actually going back a little bit to to the story that, that David was talking about um, regarding COP26 and organizations requesting the um, postponement of, of the event. So um Something that something I sometimes forget is not everybody knows what COP26 or or COP is. And COP is the Conference of the Parties, which is the UNFCCC's annual uh, big meeting um, about climate where uh, world leaders and negotiators and diplomats and folks from civil society and various organizations come together, usually in November or December, to talk about um, uh the document that, that has become the Paris Agreement, basically, are our international climate negotiations that happen over the course of two weeks every year. Last year um, was supposed to be COP26 back in 2020. Obviously, that didn't happen because of coronavirus. Um, so it was rescheduled, still taking place in Glasgow to this year. 
in November. Um, and of course, months and months and months ago, everybody became really, really nervous that COP wasn't going to, that, that if COP was going to happen in person, that it was going to be extremely inequitable because you have uh, people from nations in the global North and the West from Canada, from Europe, from the US, who have easy access to vaccines, who have been vaccinated, and who, in addition to having easy access to vaccines, are, are easily able to travel and quarantine um, if they need to, because they have the financial resources to do so. Juxtaposed with this, you have nations from the global south, obviously those who are who are most impacted by climate change and therefore really, really are, are necessary um, uh, at those international climate negotiations, who are by and large not vaccinated because because vaccines and those resources have, have been funneled into Western nations first. Um, and they also, because they are lacking in financial resources, by and large can't quarantine for the same amount of time that somebody from, from for instance, Canada could. So months and months and months ago, it was flagged that that this potentially had the opportunity to, to be super inequitable and to really, really hamstring the abilities of um, delegates, uh, whether they be from civil society or or from government to be able to come and participate in COP, which would mean that this, this negotiation wouldn't be going forward in a way that made any sense. Because again, if you don't have folks from those countries that are most affected by climate at your climate summit, then, then your negotiations are essentially invalid because, because they're leaving out the most important and, and most impacted voices. Um, now, the, the government of um, the UK came forward like, yep, we hear your concerns. We understand what you're saying. Don't worry about it. We've got this covered. We have so much money set aside. We're going to make sure that delegates are vaccinated, which is problematic in and of itself because it's it's meaning that even within a nation, there are some people who are prioritizing, some people who are not, but whatever. They said, we're going to make sure people are vaccinated. We're going to make sure people have the money so they can come and they can quarantine and they can be safe and they're going to have rooms and it's going to be okay. None of that has materialized. It's less than two months before COP and people are still by and large unvaccinated. And the additional problem is, is that countries have been ranked into a tiered system. I believe it's three tiers. I believe it's like red, yellow, green, basically. Um, and those green countries are countries like Canada, for instance, 70, over 75% of the population is vaccinated. And we're basically, we're able to fly to the UK, quarantine for just a couple of days and go into the conference and be totally fine. Then you have countries from the global south who are by and large unvaccinated who yes will be able to come if they are vaccinated but they're going to have to quarantine for like 10 days 14 days before they go into the conference space that obviously dramatically increases the cost of them participating and makes it if it were if as if it were accessible before makes it completely inaccessible now so basically we've got this situation where everybody's fears have been realized nations from the global south are going to have a really really hard time participating um and so that's why you've got all of these organizations and all these civil society groups coming out and saying, hey, this needs to be postponed. This can't happen. And it's not because they don't value the cop space. These organizations value the cop space more than just about anybody else does. They understand how integral it is and how important it is for people to come together in person to carry out these negotiations. But they also understand that, that the whole point of COP is to bring people together in a space where we try to reduce those barriers to participation as much as possible and make sure that everybody has an equal voice. And, and COP26 isn't going to be, to be a situation where that's the case. So that's why you have so many people up in arms and trying to trying to, to push back on this as much as they possibly can. So I, sorry to throw this right back to you, but do you think it will work or is it almost certainly going to move on? From what I understand, COP will almost certainly take place. 
the ball is rolling too much now to stop it would be would be a disaster in the eyes of the UK. Like the UK wants it to go forward at all costs because the the amount of money they've funneled into it at this time, not necessarily into those efforts getting folks from the global south there, but like like tens of thousands of people come to come to COP. So it's in setting up the conference space and making sure that the that the surrounding city and the surrounding community is prepared for this deluge of people coming in and think of all the Airbnbs and all the hotels that have all these spaces rented out. So, so the UK government is adamant that COP goes forward. What I hope comes out of this is it like lights a fire under their butt and they like get themselves in gear and actually put those resources in towards the communities and towards the countries that they need to, to make sure that those people are present no matter what. Um, whether or not that's actually going to materialize, who can say? <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense though. The part that I was going to jump into was actually was I think maybe just before that, which was the sort of the the other thing that was sort of bu- bu- bubbling around uh, Twitter today was this conversation about you know about how 1.5 degrees can only be hit if about 90 percent of coal like, st- gets stayed in the ground. And I will also say that we recorded this on Wednesdays, and so today was all of the Canada on Fire actions. Um, and so if you participated in any of those, uh, kudos to you, tweet them at us. We'll retweet them as well. Um, and I think that that kind of action, the scale across Canada sort of action should amplify and should, should be amplified by this other piece about 230 medical journals, all publishing a commitment to stating that climate change is the greatest threat to global public health. And I, I can't I can't help but think a little bit about a conversation that I think we had maybe David last week on the show, in which it was briefly sort of we're talking about how like if if we all fail to deal with climate change and we go extinct and then aliens come down and just read all the news leading up to this, we are not gonna look like the smartest species in the world. Because like we already have the largest military in the world, the United States military Pentagon, basically saying that global warming is the biggest national security threat that exists in the United States. That was their statement. They've made it a couple times. That's how they feel. Every medical journal has decided it is the greatest public health threat also now. Uh, it is obviously, I think most environmentalists would accept that it is the greatest uh, climate, or sorry, the greatest environmental threat, although, you know, plastic pollution is, I'm, I'm sure, up there, but let's, I think climate change still takes the cake currently, which means that basically everyone whose job it is to understand threats is like, hey, all of society, maybe we should take this more seriously, and then, you know, we don't like then you get a climate election here in Canada where no party seems to be deciding that that is like that is a real plank to run on. The liberals will just keep saying that the conservatives don't think it's real. The conservatives will say, well, at least we have a plan, uh, you know, and in, in the Greens will say we have a plan. But, you know, they've got they, like they're not going to get 170 seats and the NDP seems to not want to talk about it. For whatever reason, and in the, you look down the states, and their three point five trillion dollar plan that included some green measures is already being panned by the more progressive uh, climate organizations in the in the states, and it almost certainly won't pass in the nature that it is because of some of these you know more centrist senators like Manchin and Sinema. 
And so, like, it is really impressive, our ability to hear from almost every person we employ to tell us when threats are coming and totally ignore it. And, like, I guess I shouldn't be surprised given that we have people standing outside of hospitals protesting vaccines and protesting the people who will try to save their lives next week, but still. Yeah, well, no, and I was thinking about kind of something similar earlier today when I was when I was reading that, um, for what it's worth. Again, I didn't actually read the full nature piece. I, I read the abstract and I read the summary because I I just do not have the mental capacity to read to read a whole study or um, to read a whole journal article right now. But, um, but yeah, so so those numbers that we're looking at, where it's like you have to keep X number, you have to keep X percentage of of oil in the ground, blah 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 blah. Um, I was caught, I was caught a little bit off guard because it was like, cause I was reminded that the, um, basically our, our carbon budget, uh, for example, here, it says using a, a 2018 to 2100 carbon budget of 580 gigatons of CO2. And I was like, wait a second. I feel like I've heard that number before. And I was reminded of 10 years ago now. So I think in 2011, 350 and Bill McKibben did the whole, like, do the math tour that was really impactful for me because like, that's what like threw me into like baby climate justice organizing via the, the campus divestment movement. Um, and basically that whole tour, that whole concept was, was this notion that we have a, we have a finite carbon budget. We can only use so much of it. Therefore, it's financially, it, it financially makes sense to not make these investments in oil that we can't burn. It creates a carbon budget similar to like, or a carbon bubble similar to the housing bubble, yada, yada, yada. But basically what I'm trying to say is that we've known what our finite carbon budget is for nearly a decade now. And, and, and it almost certainly beyond that, but like, again, in like accessible, easy to understand discourse, we have known exactly what our carbon budget is for a decade and we, we haven't done enough. The, the carbon budget itself hasn't changed. What has changed is the percentage of that carbon budget that now has to stay, or like, yeah, the percentage of, of oil that has to stay in the ground has just increased because we've, I can't explain math, but you get it. It's bad. We haven't listened in the last 10 years. And, I'm, and it's so concerning. And I feel like there's just like, when we hopped on this call today, we were all feeling really bummed out. And there's this like palpable feeling of like malaise and depression hanging over everybody I know, because like you said, we're in this election right now that A, didn't need to be called and B, there is a very good chance is going to result in a conservative government. And if we get a conservative government, even if it's a minority, even if it's just Aaron O'Toole minority government for two years, that sets him up to win a majority the next time, which means that we're basically guaranteed if he wins right now, we're guaranteed six years of conservatives. And that six years very rapidly becomes 10 years because they only have to win two more terms. And like, and then, and then this whole decade of climate action that is so integral that needs to be bold and needs to be strong. And we need to see so much progress in like something like we need to see a reduction of emissions by 7% annually every single year for the next 10 years. We will not see that if we elect a conservative government. We're only barely going to see it if we elect a liberal or an NDP government. So like, I don't know, it, it makes you want to throw up your hands and just say like, what hope do we have? And I know that's not a helpful statement to make, but like, oh boy, it's grim when you look at the historical track record and you look and see how, how easily we could sink back into a decade of inaction, similar to the decade of inaction we had under Harper. Well, that's why those Fridays for Future Kids are going to be on the street on the 24th. That's true. 
Well, no. And like, really, like you realize how integral those young people were to making sure that climate was part of the conversation back in 2019. Like, I I honestly think that like part of the reason that the liberals have been pretty decent on climate the last couple of years is because there were all of those young people out in the streets making sure that people realize that this is something they care about and this is something that needs to be spoken about. And like, And I mean, I know people like joke about the Greta effect all the time and how we have to make sure that like, yeah, we're not just like crediting young white affluent organizers, but like it, it really brought up the, it, um, it popularized the idea of climate action and made sure it was at the forefront of every conversation, including the election conversation and not having them out in the streets this year, um, for obvious reasons, they're, they're tired. They're it's, it's COVID. I get, I get it, but like, it's made a huge difference, um, not having them here this time around because yeah, climate just isn't being discussed the way it was two years ago. I, I do wonder how different this is if the election is two weeks later, right after, because the big climate strike is on the 24th. It's four days after the election, right? Like it's going to be right there. It's going to happen, but it's, you know, won't get the media attention that will drive the election. It's be four, four or five days after it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if it, if it ends up being a liberal minority or, oh my gosh, how magical, like a, it's not a, a liberal NDP coalition. How cool would that be? Like then I think, yeah, having the, having the March on the Friday really sets us up for like really awesome mandate letters and really awesome um, action at COP and like an, a, a solid year of climate policy ahead. But if it's the conservatives, that's going to be a really, really angry March on that Friday, the 24th. Yeah batten down the hatches man no i'm kidding these kids are these kids are great (laughs) thank you for listening to the green majority we are entirely listener supported so if you enjoy the show please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as one dollar And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Thanks so much for joining us for the featured interview for this week, which is with Matthew Klippenstein, friend of the show and branch manager for Hydrogen BC. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me again, Stephanie. So earlier this week, you sent along to the show, which anyone could do, email us, whatever you like, contact at Green Majority, please do. We always want to hear from y'all. And you sent along this DNV Energy Transition Outlook from 2021 me the executive summary. I'm sure there's a longer piece somewhere else. Thank you for not sending me the, I'm sure, incredibly long. The executive summary of this thing is 40 pages, so I can only imagine how long the actual thing is. And I will admit my ignorance. I've never heard of DNV before. Their slogan is when trust matters. And I will say that as a friend of the show, we trust your opinion. And so can you give our listeners a reason who are DNV and why should we trust them? Sure. So DNVGL is a Norwegian company and The best way to describe them would be 
if you imagine a company which was at, on one hand, like CSA, like certification for electric circuits and equipment, and at the same time, it had an energy research arm similar to Bloomberg Energy Finance, BNBF, or one of the other major pro-renewables consultancies, I'll call it, non-captured by the fossil consultancies. They're very prominent in the space. They took over a leading wind consultancy, as an example, a Gerald Hassan, I think it's called in Britain. And one thing that is enjoyable about their forecast is that they choose what their forecast is going to be and they stick with it. There's no scenarios. There's no humming and hawing about people get really serious. We can do this. Otherwise, we can do this. Otherwise, we'll do that. And it allows you to have a bit of a consistency from year by year to see how uh, they model the energy transition shifting. Uh, it has been going well, but we needed to continue to go uh, much better or much more in the appropriate direction going forward. And yeah, as you mentioned, the first key finding is we're not meeting our Paris ambitions. But perhaps you can elaborate further on the core insights here and, and what we should be paying attention to. Sure. Yeah. So as you said, this is a, a monumental uh, a report. I think I'll just highlight two things. You might consider them to be low lights. Uh, one is that they project we'll have 2.3 Celsius uh, warming by the year 2100. This is over pre-industrial levels. So we're already at 1.2, I think, 1.3. Now, this is obviously uh, higher than 2 degrees, and it's much higher than 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so it does highlight the need for further activity. The benefit of their method is that it's not one of the nice hope and feel and, and unicorns. If we get our act together, we can achieve X. They're saying, but based on what we figure is going to result from these policies, we're going to get 2.3 Celsius. Now, this is a little bit of progress as their 2017 outlook, uh, again, these are nice comparable documents. They estimate it to be 2.5. We have to bring that number down further, and there is room for that to happen. So the other main piece is, and this hasn't changed that much in the past few years, they estimate that 50% of global final energy use will be fossil fuels in 2050. And this is something that we can do something about, especially on the advocacy side. It is also something where we have a little bit of room to improve on. As for example, the, uh, the DNVGL model for North America assumes that about half of all energy consumption is fossil fuel based in 2050. I'm sure we can do a lot better than that. I'm pretty sure that uh, we can get to a point where the political will is there and the regulations are there to get us, if not at net zero by 2050, pretty darn close. So there, there is a path forward to greatly improve on the 2.3 C. Although I'm not holding my breath that we could make it to 1.5 C just with the inertia in the system as we have it today. Yeah, it's interesting how much that extra 0.5 that sort of became clear that was more necessary as we moved forward and how much more difficult it will be to hit that than previously when the IPC was saying too. It's interesting that you mentioned that you think we can beat the electrification pieces because I do think that I agree with you. I think that often happens faster than people think. And hopefully that we will see some sort of progress. Although I will note, they see that COVID-19, the economic recovery was a lost opportunity, which I've been worrying about because there had been a few studies that come out that sort of imply too much money was going into to fossil fuels. And so it's interesting hearing them really hammer that home, being like, yeah, we really could have done a green recovery. And despite many different countries coming out and saying that their transition would be green or that their recovery would be green, we didn't really see that. And right. it highlighted here, but I'm curious, what stood out to you 
what what were the pieces that sort of maybe were surprising to you or or interesting? Sure, yeah. So I guess just on the lost opportunity side, I'm not to make excuses for government, but I think that mm, the response to COVID proved that uh, there's only a certain amount of bandwidth of uh, ability to respond to crises. So I wouldn't fault civil servants and the political masters because they were already clearly at their limit trying to design some sort of a, a COVID response then I'm not going to fault them too much for not actually having everything in order to actually pull through a transformative green recovery. We still do have every day, every month, every year, it's a, a new opportunity to push forward where we didn't before. Uh, sort of a spilled milk situation there. Maybe the, the one, one data point which I think is important to realize because we are speaking as people in the global north, the OECD world, very privileged uh, compared to many of our human cousins. One prediction that DNVGL made was that India would have, would produce about 60% of its final energy demand from fossil fuels in the year 2050. And again, I think this can be improved on. It's not like the policy ambition of 2021 is still going to be the policy ambition in 2049. But I want to emphasize that in the same way that we, we dislike it when wealthy plutocrats say we can't possibly afford, we'll ruin the, the, the balanced budget if we implement pharmacare or other things like that, then we definitely don't want to be in a situation where we, the rich people who have consumed the entire global carbon budget on our own, are scolding folks in the global south who outnumber us greatly and say, you can't be, you can't be uh, burning fossil fuels even if it does increase your living standards and contribute somewhat to reduce infant mortality and so forth. That was a, a necessary reminder because it's one thing to be British Columbian, talking to an Albertan on relatively equal terms and saying, we got to totally cut down our, our fossil fuel use. Very hard for someone in Canada, GDP per capita on a British carry base, like 49,000 roughly, to do the same to someone in India, which has a per capita GDP purchase power parity of like 7,000. So uh, that was an important uh, reminder for me because whatever the, the turnout is, I never want to be one of these wealthy privileged people who's like telling others that, well, we can't afford to, to have your lot in life proofs. Yeah, it's interesting. I was having a conversation yesterday actually with someone who was putting together one of these all candidate debates. Mm. And they were talking about trying to come up with a good sort of climate question in regards to our responsibility to, you know, these nations overseas. And I was responding with a little bit, I think what you're applying there or which, where were you going with, which was in my mind, if I had to explain our responsibility um, to these nations, it comes from our historic carbon, right? Like we have admitted so much carbon over the past 200 years to get where we are. And in my mind, that's the carbon that we have a responsibility to, to own up for. And so just taking our last little bit that we, of carbon that we have left and dividing it up equally and being like, that's only fair, really does not account for the amount of carbon that we've already burned. And so I wonder if you can expand on your thought about what we actually owe and to these other nations and, and how we might address that. Sure. This is a weird case where, I don't know, I'm, I'm so far pessimistic and optimistic. And, but you make a very valid point, right? If you are the typical person, again, I'm going to use India because China is rather more geopolitically complicated. If uh, you were born in India, India's cumulative carbon footprint per capita is tiny yeah, because they were plundered by people with very high carbon footprints. And so an equitable, a fair uh, approach 
would be to have the countries who have historically emitted most carbon do most of the cleanup or most of the compensation. And ordinarily, if you're thinking about this on an altruism perspective, that kind of thing would never happen. I am actually somewhat uh, optimistic on this side, though, that we will at some point get carbon reparation. Now, if you believe in, if you're relying on the altruism of OECD countries to you know, provide reparations to developing the global south, who is now struggling with climate change, if you're relying on altruism, that'll never happen. I think that we'll get there overall as a species and as a planet uh, through greed though, or through, yeah, through self-interest. I could easily imagine that, let's say the, the world of 2050 or even 2040, India decides we're going to give preferential access to our market of 1,500 million consumers who are young or getting wealthier, who want to have more, you know, uh, material prosperity, spiritual prosperity is also important. Um, they can go and shop around the different countries, the different regions and say, Britain or Europe, we've noticed that historically you've emitted X amount of carbon. If you want to have unconstrained access to our markets, we need the proof that you're burying Y or Z millions of tons of carbon per year. You're just drawing it out of the atmosphere. And if you aren't really up to that, we'll apply a carbon tariff, which is exactly what Europe proposed doing back in 2021. So I'm uh, very hopeful that this uh, European initiative, I don't think the European thing is going to come through because these things rarely go through on the first try, but maybe by 2025, maybe by 2028, Europe applies a carbon tariff to any goods that are produced in, in high emissions economies with high emission energy. And then the global South manages to pull out an ace from the, uh, the deck of cards and say, we're going to apply the same thing, except it's not going to be energy emissions. It's going to be cumulative historical emissions. And because 80% plus of the global population is in the global south, you folks in the north have to listen to us. So in that sense, I think that the fear of losing trade access to your key companies, your, your, your national champions, would spur even the most simple government into action once they'd spent a bunch of money lobbying. And, and then we can get to a place where there's a positive drive or a, an urgent drive by self-interested countries to bury more carbon so that they can participate in these markets. I really like that phrase that you mentioned of being so pessimistic, you turns around and become optimistic. But on that optimism train, you know, as we had, as we had discussed earlier on the show, one thing I'm interested in doing is collecting policy ideas from people who know different sectors, because if we're going to accept that the economist way of doing things, which is the price on carbon, is their whole idea. That's the, that's, that is the solution from an economist view. Just put a price on carbon, increase it, and then that's going to, that's the answer. If we've accepted that and it's not getting us there, as this report shows, as anyone reading the IPCC reports knows, it's not getting to where we need to be, even as it increases in the Canadian context. So accepting that, it seems to me that the answer has to be that we have to find other ideas as well. All right, we have a carbon price, not get rid of that, but let's explore other things. And we're at a throw the kitchen sink at this climate problem kind of areas. It's not an emergency unless you're trying everything. And if you were given the power to enact one policy, what would it be? Okay, so I suppose the most clarifying thing that I would do would be to map out a policy, not for 2030, uh, a policy path for net zero. You know, 
we can worry about what year that it's later, but map out the policy measures that you need to get to net zero. So it can be fully brought to the public so that people can browse it and see, even if it's going to have to be high level. But I think it would be very helpful and very clarifying to the discussion, the public debate, at least people want to be informed in public debate to say, these are all the different things that we need to do to accomplish to get the net zero or true zero, you know, because our forests are burning. And having that laid out in an official government document or even an official party platform would be very helpful because there are many additional things that have to be done beyond what is currently discussed currently on tap for 2030. One of the, the big examples is to decarbonize the production of cement, steel, and ammonia, which is used in fertilizer. And uh, these are generally not covered under these 2030 goals, but we have to get there. Because they aren't mentioned in these 2030 goals, that's one reason why in BGO is still saying 50% of the energy consumed in North America is still fossil fuels. Once you have that roadmap out there, that even if one government or another goes less aggressive or more aggressive on it, that allows you to have a full picture of all the tasks we need to accomplish in all these different sectors. There are these studies, but they're academic. They don't have the imprimatur of, uh, of government. And having that available, readily accessible, I think would be immensely helpful. Because until you know in your head what has to be done, it's, it's very hard to actually map a path to get there. A work back plan. I like that. That's how my brain works. So I appreciate it. All right. It's become a tradition of mine to end these interviews with a simple last word to give to you. To buy time, I will say thank you so much for joining us. Magic Libensign, the branch manager for Hydrogen BC. Always a pleasure to talk to you. But yeah, it'll be your words and then the ending music. Your last words for our listeners on this September day. So we have a just transition for oil and gas workers. Perhaps you could have a climate transition for uh, First Nations communities so that they can have all the prosperity that comes from leveraging their uh, natural resources without having to cut down otherwise mine those resources.